We are so grateful for Stephanie Ward and our benevolence team, our benevolence ministry, and as you can see, impacting so many lives every year. And so, one more time, can we just show some love for them? Can we give it up for them? And I hope you guys know it's because of you. It's because of the giving that you continue to do. I think our Benevolence Fund is the highest it's ever been during COVID. During a global pandemic, it's the highest it's ever been. So thank you guys for, for giving. Hey, I want to lead us in prayer before we go to the Lord in his word. Father, we sang it earlier and we pray it now. And we ask that you would help us live it always. Be exalted over all. Be exalted in our worship and our praise and our adorations and our affections for you because you are deserving, because you are worthy. You are the only one who is worthy. God, truly help us to make it all about you. We say that at Bethel all the time, but let us live it wholeheartedly, every single one of us. Let us love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength to strive to do that, Lord. And we know that we are inept apart from you, that we are incapable of doing that apart from you. But may we grow in our love for you because of your love for us. This morning, Father, as we expound on your love, may that love pour out to others as you have called us to do. Not only loving you because you love us, but you have called us to something so great to love our neighbors as ourselves. This we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you were to ask the average person, what is the greatest advice you have ever given someone? What, what kind of replies do you think you would hear? I don't know, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you would probably hear some worn out cliches like live, laugh, love. Live every day as if it's your last. Carpe diem. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Thank you, Michael Jordan or Michael Scott. I don't know. Uh, it's not about the number of breaths you take in life, but the number of moments in your life that take your breath away. Oh, <laughs> Or yesterday is history, tomorrow a mystery, today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. <laughs> right? Or you gotta look through the rain to see the rainbow. Or you gotta kiss a lot of frogs to find your prince. Or when life hands you a lemon, You'd ask life for some water and sugar, because what are you going to do with lemon juice? That's terrible lemonade. Or my personal favorite, and this is one that has served me very well in life, Jared, don't be an idiot. <laughs> do you realize that Jesus was asked this very question? Jesus, what is the greatest advice that you could ever give? Oh, maybe not in so many words, but a man essentially comes up to Jesus and asks, teacher, what is the greatest thing we can know and we can believe. Now, if our summer sermon series, and say that three times fast, summer sermon series is bottom lines of the Bible, then this is it. This is the bottom line of all bottom lines. What is the greatest thing we can know and believe? And this is Jesus, the Son of God. So it would behoove us to lean in and to listen, to pay attention to his reply which is what we're gonna do. So turn to Matthew chapter 22 in your Bibles or on your phones if you have a Bible app. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, and it will be on the screen as well. It says this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, 
they gathered together. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees were two parts of the Jewish leadership. So they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders here, and they keep trying and trying and trying to trap Jesus, to corner him into saying something that would discredit him, that would make him a man of ill repute among the people. But Jesus just answers perfectly and astutely every single time. And a lawyer sees this, and he's never seen someone reply like this. He's never seen someone answer like this man. So he is intrigued by Jesus. And so he asked Jesus a question to test him. What is the most important command? Now, if you have multiple kids and one of your kids comes up to you and says, Daddy, Mommy, am I your favorite? Do you love me the most or do you love one of my siblings the most? Don't answer that. Run away. In the words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Don't do it. No matter what answer Jesus gave, it was sure to provoke controversy. See, in the Torah, the book of the law, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, the Lord gave the Israelites a number of commandments to follow, 613 commandments, in fact. And all these commandments were equally binding, and so a hasty reply could insinuate that Jesus was repudiated at least some of the law, that he was dismissing some of the commands. But So this was an entrapment question, but it wasn't a typical entrapment question like, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar, to the government? This was a question of values and priorities. What is the greatest command in all the law? And Jesus basically responds, love God, love others. Love God, love others. Now notice Jesus was only asked for one law, and yet he gives two, two commands. So which is it, Jesus, love God, or love others? To which Jesus would have responded, yes. Both, love God, love others. These two commands intrinsically form two parts, but one whole. They're two sides of the same coin. And masterfully, Jesus says that these are so important that all the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, hangs on these principles, depends on, is summarized by love God, love others. Everything in life goes back to these two concepts, love God and love others. And Paul reaffirms this in Romans 13. If you remember our series in Romans Uh, We covered this passage last year, Romans 13, 8 through 10, where he says, The one who loves another has fulfilled the law, for the commandments are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is what it has always been about. It's what it's always been about. Or as John Piper so eloquently says this way, love is the origin and the goal of the scriptures. It is the beginning and the end of why God inspired the Bible. It's the fountainhead and spring at one end and the shoreless ocean on the other end of the river of redemptive history remembered and promised in the word of God. 
So Jesus says all of the scriptures hang on, depend on, are summarized by these two things, love God, love others. So it would make sense that he quotes scripture, which he does. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, known as the Shema in Hebrew. Listen up! Pay attention! Do you see what just happened just now? Some of you are on your phones, you're looking down, I hope on your Bible, maybe playing Candy Crush, I don't know. But you're on the phone, and when I did that, parents, you know this trick well. When you say to your kids, hey, listen up, pay attention, your kids, oh, you got their attention. So whatever you say next better be very important. That's literally what Shema means. Shema means listen up, pay attention. And so the text goes, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Now that sounded like gibberish. I wasn't speaking in tongues. That's actually Hebrew. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 in Hebrew. This is actually literally the prayer that Jewish people pray every day, multiple times a day. This is probably the most important prayer or passage to Jewish people back then and now, and one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. In fact, it's so important, you look at verses eight and nine of Deuteronomy six, look at the screen up here on these pictures. This is called a phylactery on the left and a mezuzah on the right. A phylactery, now I went to Israel several years ago, a phylactery is this box that, that literally contains a small scroll uh, that is, has the Shema written on it that they put on their forehead. And there on the right, that's a mezuzah. And so inside there are, are also the scriptures, the, the Shema. Now, why would they do this? Because verses 8 and 9 say, you shall bind these scriptures, this, you shall bind this on your forehead and put it on the doorposts of your house. Now, that's meant to be symbolic. God is saying, this is so important. You, you need to be reminded every day, constantly. Remind your children, remind your grandchildren. This is so important to love God and love others. But they, obviously, they took this very literal. But it is so important. So, Shema Yisrael. Listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. One, Ahad in Hebrew. Now, Ahad means one, and this, this is a statement of monotheism. We are monotheists, we don't serve multiple gods. It's one God, eternally existent in three persons, not three gods, one God, we are monotheists. So yeah, this is a statement of monotheism, but it's not only a statement of monotheism, it is saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, one. He is the one, he is the only one. He's the only one. There is no one besides him. He is holy. He is in a category unique and unto himself. He is unrivaled. One God means one love and one undivided devotion for him. And I wish I had some Christians who were excited about that who said, amen. Ehad, one, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so we shall love the Lord our God with all our Heart, lavav in Hebrew, all our soul, it's nefesh. Nefesh in, in Hebrew is a, an interesting word. It, it's like our life essence. It means soul or life. It's every fiber of our brain. It's every, it's every breath in our lungs. It's all that we are, all of our life, all of our soul. And then it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your... Now, in English, we would say mind. 
In the New Testament, in Luke and Mark, it says mind and strength, but it's actually a word in Hebrew we don't have in English. Not exactly. At least it's not summarized that way. And it's the word meod. Everyone say meod. Now, meod means very or much or exceedingly. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the waters, the earth and the sea and the animals and the plants. And after every day, he said, it is good. Now, on the sixth day, he creates mankind. Humanity is created, and he said, it is very good. Meod, good. So, I don't know if there are any English teachers in the house, but you might be thinking, that seems like bad grammar. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your very, all your much, all your exceedingly, but it's so poetic and profound. He's saying, love your God with all that you are, with all the much, all the exceeding, all the very, very, very much, just with every essence of your being, every cell in your body, every fiber in your heart, every breath in your lungs, every second of every minute of every day, love the Lord with all that you are. And loving God with all that you are is the most important thing you can do. It's literally what we were made to do. Humanity was created for this purpose, loving God. So love God, love others. And that order is very important. Our love for others happens because of our love for God, and our love for God only happens because of the love from God. Uh, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We see this concept. 1 John chapter 4, you can look at the screens. Verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. This is the demonstration of love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the wrath of God lightning rod so that on the cross Jesus absorbed all the just wrath that we deserve so we are shielded from God's wrath that we, that we owe to ourselves and instead experience nothing but his love, his grace, grace and his mercy. And come on, I need some Christians to shout out, amen. That is good news. That is the gospel. And beloved, if God so loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. Now, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now go down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God's love is not a sentiment. It is a love that emanates, radiates, originates from his very character. God loves because he is love. He does not love because we demand love. He doesn't love because we earn love. He doesn't love because, listen, hear me, he doesn't even love because we need love, although we do. He loves because he just is. He just is love. And we love because he first loved us. And the horizontal love 
that we have for one another flows from the vertical love that we have for God and that he has for us. And it only works directionally that way. It's not, I will love you and you love me. We love each other so that we love God. God loves us. We love him. And out of that love, we are able to love one another. Anyone who claims to love God must love one another. You cannot do one without the other. So love God. That is the most important thing you can know in life. But the second is like it. Jesus says the second commandment, which comes from Leviticus 19.18, is love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look at the context of Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, it says, minister to the poor and the foreigner among you and give to them. Don't steal, don't lie to one another, deal with people with integrity, do not oppress your neighbor, look out for the downtrodden and the marginalized in society, do not show favor or partiality to the rich and powerful, but reach out to the poor and show them dignity. Do not slander people, Do not hate anyone in your heart. Do not take vengeance for yourself or bear a grudge against anyone. And summarizing all this, then it gets to verse 18. In summary, love your neighbor as yourself. So in the Old Testament, it was clear, I show my love for God by how I treat those around me. Love your neighbor as yourself. But there's a little tag at the end of verse 18 in Leviticus 19. For I am the Lord. So if we're thinking about the who, the what, the how, the why, this is the why. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord. We love others because he is Lord, and we want to reflect his loving, holy character. And if God is love, and we are to reflect his love, and we belong to him, church, should we not love as he does? Love your neighbor as yourself. So what? Love who, your neighbor, how, as yourself. Let's look at those three parts. First, what? Love. Love is the most powerful and sought-after idea among humanity. I mean, think about how many songs and poems and books and TV shows and movies have been based on love. No thought has been more misconstrued, more misrepresented, more misunderstood. It is the most highly valued and sought-after idea, yet the most compromised concept in society. Everyone knows they need it. Everyone wants it. So simple a child can comprehend it, yet so complex that scholars spend their entire lives studying it. Anyone can receive it, yet few understand it. Although it's free, people still try to buy it, sell it, and kill for it. Wars have literally been started due to unrequited love. We are to freely give it to our friends and to our enemies. Greeting cards are based on this more than anything else. In fact, the greeting card industry expresses this and was started because of this. An entire holiday is devoted to it. When we put it into words, it is powerful. When we put it into actions, it is revolutionary. God created us for it. We rejected it. Christ died because of it. And by faith in Jesus, we have it completely. Love. What a radical concept. And if love for others flows from love for God, and his love for us, then what does God's love look like? Well, it's unfortunate that we only have one word in the English language for love, which is what, church? It's not a trick question. Love. In other languages, particularly biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek, there were multiple words for love. Because there are multiple forms and types of love. You know, if you love your mom like you love chocolate, whoo, <laughs> it's a bad Mother's Day. You either love your mom way too little or you love chocolate way too much. There are levels of love. 
There are types of love. There are forms of love. Philos means brotherly love. Philadelphia means city of brotherly love. Eros, where we get our word erotic, is romantic love. Storge, that's familial love, parental love. That's the love that parents have for their kids. And then you have the strongest form of love in the Greek language. I mean, the noblest word that they had for the concept of love. Anyone want to take a guess what it is in the Greek? Agape. Agape. Agape love can be defined this way. It is selflessly seeking what is truly best for another. Selflessly seeking what is truly best for the other. It is others-focused and Christ-centered. And you have to have those two components. You know, we moved here four and a half years ago from Nevada before coming to Indiana. And in Nevada, uh, when, I, when I went there, we lived in a rural area, northeast Nevada, in an area they refer to as a high desert, small town. And I, at the time, I had never owned a gun. I never even shot a gun. And a buddy of mine who, he's like a gun enthusiast, came up to me and he found that out. And he's like, you've never, we're going to the shooting range this weekend. I'm taking, I'm like, okay, all right. So we go. And he, he's like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to shoot a gun. I'm going to set up a target 50 yards down the, the way. And it's, you know, one of those paper targets with the concentric rings, the bullseye. He, he sets up the rifle and he says, I want you to look through the scope. So he puts it on a little stabilizer stand, and he's showing me how to do it. And I look through the scope, and he says, what do you see? I said, well, I see the target. Good. What else do you see? Well, I see these crosshairs. Good. I want you to line up the crosshairs with the target and just pull the trigger. And I, listen, we all struggle with pride, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be a phenom. I'm going to be a prodigy. He's going to be like, that was the greatest thing I've ever seen. You should enter some shooting competitions. Like, I'm, I'm, literally, I'm thinking in my mind, like, what, be blown away. Watch this. And I, I aim it. I get the crosshairs lined up with the bullseye, and I pull the trigger. And it goes 20 yards to the left of the target, hits this dirt mound behind, and this little cloud of dust goes poof. And I look over at my buddy, and he literally does this. He makes this face. As he goes, ugh. He said, well, that's not the worst I've ever seen. It, it's close, but it's not the worst I've ever seen. He said, I want you to look through the scope again. So I looked through the scope. He says, what do you see? I said, oh, I see the crosshairs. I see the target. He says, what else do you see? I said, well, at the end of the barrel, there's this little nodule, a little bump. He goes, right. Now this time, line up that bump with the crosshairs, with the target. This is called sighting in a rifle. And so I do that. I line up all three points. And this time, I take a deep breath and I pull the trigger. Now, how many of you, by show of hands, would say, I hit the bullseye? Come on now. <laughs> you know, at Cedar Lake, half the people rose their hands. <laughs> uh, regardless, you're right. Not even close to the bullseye, but I hit the paper. Woo! Yay! I guess you can applaud that. But the point is, it got better. Now, with practice, I'm sure I would have gotten pretty close because when you line up all three points, you are aiming as it was designed to be. And in agape love, you aim all the, the, you line up all the points to aim the love effectively. You aim with self-giving, 
others-focused, and Christ-centered. You line up those points together, and now you can direct your agape love as God designed it and intended it to be. True love is self-giving. It is others-focused. It is Christ-centered. So how does God's love, true love, compare with the world's definition of love? I'm going to give you six things real quick. Number one, worldly love is allowing people to do what they think is best for themselves. That's the world's mantra. Just do what feels right. Do what you think is good. Do what you seem is right in your own eyes. The world sees love as a feeling. I fell in love or I fell out of love. True love will say or do the tough things for the good of the other. Love is a choice. God chose to love us. Number two, the world loves those who can further your career or give you something in return. I'll love you, but what are you going to give me back? It's very conditional. True love is all-encompassing, expecting nothing in return. In fact, we can give God nothing. True love loves the unlovable who can do nothing for you. And number three, the world will love you if you meet their qualifications. God's love is unconditional. Number four, worldly love is self-serving and cares more what it gets from the relationship than what it gives to that relationship. True love is sacrificial. Number five, worldly love is fickle. Oh, people will love you in the good times and they will despise you or abandon you in the bad times. God's love is steadfast and immovable. Number six, worldly love is often impersonal. It looks like love. It mimics love. It attempts to mimic love by, hey, I'll write you a check, but I'm not going to be a shoulder for you to cry on. I'm not going to put skin in the game. Not so with God's love. See, worldly love calls itself tolerant while overlooking all kinds of sinful and destructive behaviors in the name of love. God's love is deeply personal, proven by the fact that God became man to demonstrate love to mankind dying by the very hands he created. Creation, the divinity became personally involved in humanity. The creator entered into creation. You can't be more personal in your love than that. That's the incarnational, in the flesh kind of love. The world's love is a false facsimile, a pale shadow, a cheap imitation of the reality of true love. God's love is an actualization of his character. It is selfless, sacrificial, all-encompassing, unconditional, steadfast, immovable, and personal because he is selfless, sacrificial, all-encompassing, unconditional, steadfast, immovable, and personal. And we are to love others as he loves us. So do you? Do you love others like that? How have you shown agape love to others recently? You know, if we were to go back into 1 John, this time in chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Let us not love in, in speech only, but in action, in deed, in truth. He's saying if you have the means to meet people's needs and you see someone in need and you're like, well, be warm and well-fed, be on your way, I'm going to do my own thing. You see a homeless person laying on the ground and you do nothing, your heart turns against them, ah, I'm sure someone else will take care of them. And you go the other way, how can we say we love God 
How can God's love be in us when we can't show love to others, when we have the means to help them? Talk is cheap, friends. It is much easier to commend love than it is to live love. And let me make it personal. It's easier for me to preach 10 sermons than to live one. But love is action. Love is shown. There is no lip surface love. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then an action is worth a thousand pictures. Love speaks volumes. So what do we do, church? Come on, starts with L, ends with of. Love. Who do we love? Well, he says, your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, this is the question posed to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, actually. A lawyer, probably a different lawyer, comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not a well-worded question because we know that we cannot do anything to inherit eternal life, that it's freely given, freely received, paid for by the Lord. So we can't earn it. It's not works-based righteousness. There's nothing we can do to get God's love, to get his favor, to get salvation. Nothing, no religion, no church attendance, nothing. We can't inherit eternal life. It's trusting in what Jesus has already done, paid for. It is finished on the cross. But Jesus plays along and he says, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer says, well, love Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, right, correct. Do this and you will live. Now, he's not saying be workspace. He's saying if you truly have faith in me, if you truly love God by faith, you trust in him, you have salvation, then the outpouring will be that you do love God and you love others. It's not the cause, it's the effect. It's the result of salvation. And so the man says, okay. You see the wheels start turning, but, but who is my neighbor? In fact, it literally says seeking to justify himself. Seeking to declare himself righteous, self-righteous. Yeah, but who is my neighbor? He's already thinking, oh, I love people, but not that guy. <laughs> oh, please, Jesus, don't make me love that guy. Or this whole group of people. You know they hate us, right? And we hate them. I mean, I'll love anyone and everyone else, but not that guy and not those people. And so Jesus gives probably one of the most well-known parables in all of Scripture. Even people who have never grown up in church have heard of this, the Good Samaritan. You have this man, the story goes like this. You have this man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, a very dangerous route. And as he's on his way, some robbers catch him off guard. Some guys that, thieves that rob him blind, strip him bare, beaten, beat him half to death, and leave him for dead. My guess, he's probably unconscious. He can't even get up and walk. I mean, he's just laying there half dead on the brink of death. And one guy after a while, comes by. It says a priest, a man of the cloth. If anyone's going to help him, it'd be a religious person, right? But this man goes, oh, nope, and walks to the other side of the road, it says, and goes on. Doesn't even go check on him. Doesn't even administer CPR. I'm just going to move on. Second guy comes after a while, and it's a Levite. Now, the Levites, the Levitical tribe, was like the elite of the elite. These were the have much and the, you know, the, the, the have uh, to-dos. They, they, they had a lot of possession and prestige and pride. This was the priestly tribe. This was the noble tribe. They were elevated high in society. So if anyone's going to help this man, if anyone had the means to help him, it would be a Levite. What does he do? Same thing. Nope. 
and goes on. This is a Jewish man, by the way, laying on the ground. And these are Jewish people who say, nope, I'm not going to help one of my own Jewish brothers. But then a third man comes along, and of course, you know, it's the Samaritan. Now, as I can imagine, Jesus is telling this story. The people are like, oh, no, Jesus, not a Samaritan, please. Who do you think helps him? The Samaritan. Samaritans hated the Jews. Jews hated the Samaritans. And yet the Samaritan goes over to this half-dead Jewish man, and he helps him. He binds up his wounds, bandages him, puts him on his donkey, and takes him to the nearest inn. And he pays the innkeeper whatever is needed for his lodging. He says, hey, i got to go away on business, but take care of him. I'll pay whatever is needed when he gets back so he gets to full recovery. And Jesus says, now, who do you think was the true neighbor? Who really showed neighborly love? And his point is this. Your neighbor is anyone around you, even, perhaps especially, those who are unlike you. Oh, it's easy to love those who are easy to love. It's easy to love those who think like you, act like you, look like you, live like you. Essentially, our tribe. It's easy to love our tribe. But Jesus describes earlier in Luke chapter 6 a radical kind of love. We are to love the unlovable. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Give to the one who takes from you, who hurts you, who robs you. Lend to those who cannot repay. Anyone can love those who love you. Anyone can do good to those who do good to you. It's so natural and easy. It's no problem to show kindness to those who are kind to you. That's how the world reacts. That's the world's kind of love. The world does that. But Christians, not so with us. We are called to love radically. Love those who cuss you out. Love those who slander you on social media. Love those who are just flat annoying. <laughs> love those who are not pleasant to be around. Love those who frustrate you, who make you angry. Love those who vote differently than you, who are politically on the other side of the aisle. Love those who look differently, live differently than you. Love those who are on the other side of the tracks. You know, I've heard uh, uh, people say, well, I, I will never go to such and such community in Northwest, Northwest Indiana. I'll never go to that community. Do you realize when you say that, it comes across like you are writing off an entire community of people? And in so doing, it comes across like you are robbing them of human dignity and worth. Now, I realize when people say that, they're actually saying, I don't want to go there because of my safety. And now some assumptions are being made I don't want to get into. But since when are we called to love when it's safe? Come on, church, when are we called to love when it's easy or comfortable? Show me right here. Show me in Scripture any passage. In fact, if you can show me a verse or passage that says we are only called to love when it's easy, comfortable, or safe, I will pay you $100. I kid you not. Because it's not in here. And now don't take it out of context. I'm not going to pay you if you take it out of context. But it's not in here. We are not only called to love when it's safe or comfortable or easy. We are called to love like Jesus loves. We are called to love radically. This is how Jesus loved. Jesus showed love for the forgotten ones. In John 13, Jesus washes Judas' feet. Now, I don't even like touching my own feet, let alone someone else's feet, let alone the feet of the person who's going to betray me to death, but Jesus does it anyway. Why? Because he loves his neighbor. Biblical love turns strangers, even enemies, into neighbors.
So how might you show love to someone who is nasty to you, someone who's unpleasant, someone who can never pay you back, someone who doesn't look like you, someone who doesn't act like you, someone who lives differently? How can you show them agape love? So first, we are called to what? Love. Who? Your neighbor. How? Lastly, as yourself. Love others as myself? So I just need to learn to love myself more, right? I need to learn to love myself then, right? Well, no, not exactly. The solution is not to boost our psychological self-image. The starting point is not self-love, even though I'm telling you, that's how this verse is interpreted with so many people. I read a lot of articles and commentaries and books and listened to sermons by well-known pastors, and this is the notion they gave, oh, to love others, you just have to first learn to love yourself. Before you love God, you must love yourself. And then the common mantra was, if you don't love yourself, how are you going to love anyone else? As if love for yourself is the catalyst, the only thing that enables you to love others. No. Now, I get that they're trying to address self-loathing and boost self-esteem, but self-loathing is still self-centered. It's still self-aggrandizing. In 2 Timothy 3.2, Paul even calls out those who are lovers of self as wrong and sinful. So it's not self-love. Self-love is self-focused, and we are not to be self-focused. But self-love is not only self-focused, it is self-defeating. Love, by its very definition, by its very nature, requires an object and a subject, a giver and a receiver, a lover and a beloved. That's why God is love. Because in the very nature of God, you have one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving each other perfectly, radiating, emanating love for one another, community in perfect unity, in love as a definition and expression of love. And out of that love, we love. So remember, true love is selfless, not selfish. Love is not self-preservation. It is not self-dependence. It is not people-pleasing. It is not forced love. It is not codependency. It is not, not coercion where we give love in order to get love in return. It's not I will be kind to you so that you will be kind to me. So then what does this mean? Well, this is not only a command, it's a presumption. It means your neighbor, who we defined earlier as all those around you, even those who are unlike you, are really like you. Those who are unlike you are really like you. Not identically, but substantively the same. Two years ago, I was able to go on one of our Bethel Go trips, which I would highly encourage all of you to do. We were able to go to Beirut, Lebanon. And Lebanon, if you don't know, over the last two years has gone through crisis after crisis after crisis. They, of course, have gone through COVID. They had an economic financial crisis. Their economy has just tanked. They've had a political crisis, riots everywhere. If you remember last August, there was a massive explosion. A warehouse exploded that had ammonium nitrate left a crater literally in downtown Beirut, killing hundreds. And before all this, years ago, because of the civil war in Syria, refugees from Syria were pouring into Lebanon, neighboring Lebanon. So Lebanon at the time had four million people, a population of four million, and then you have two million Syrian refugees pouring in. So where do you think these refugees are gonna go? Well, in camps, in abandoned shacks and 
barns and sheds, living under overpasses in warehouses and factories and refugee camps and tents. And we had the opportunity through Kids Alive, they took us to meet with some of these refugee, Syrian refugee families. And I remember we one night were going to what I can only describe as an abandoned factory or warehouse. And we go up this rickety ladder and climb up this little narrow staircase. And we crawl through like a tunnel to get to this room that's very hot in the top and the back. I can only describe it as a stock room. What I can imagine was a pantry or stock room, probably the size of the food pantry in your house. And there was a family of four or five living in this unventilated, there's no air, it's hot, middle of June, space, small space. The dad, the mom, and two or three kids, and the dad was out looking for work, the mom was there, and we were speaking through an interpreter. She didn't speak any English, we didn't speak any Arabic, and yet we're hearing her story, we're listening to her, praying for her, and it was beautiful. Now, in Islamic culture, a woman will not look a man in the eyes. It's a sign of respect. And so she was looking down. She wouldn't look at me. But there were a couple of times where our eyes met. <laughs> and I'm telling you, this moment is, that, is forever tattooed on my brain. I can never forget it. Because in that moment, I saw humanity. I saw dignity. I saw a woman who was made in the image of God, who just wanted to be loved who had likely been abused by her husband, who hated loneliness, hated despair, just wanted hope. I saw someone who needed God, who needed love. And that's the point. Other people have similar needs, desires, hopes, fears, limitations, hurts, pains, sorrows. They long for love. They desire relationships. They despise loneliness. They dread despair. They are our equals. They too were made in the image of God. They too are God's creation of infinite worth and dignity. They too are frail and finite, weak and willful, selfish and stupid, deprived and depraved, just like us. Just as we are. And so we treat them as we ourselves want to be treated. Seems like we've heard that somewhere. It's the golden rule in Luke 6. Do to others as you would wish they do to you. And so how do we want to be treated? How do we need to be treated? Namely, with love. Show them dignity and respect and honesty and affection and kindness. Miroslav Volv, in his book, A Spacious Heart, says it this way. This is so good. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. He's saying we demonize, we dehumanize people who aren't like us, who are even our enemies, and we elevate ourselves on a pedestal. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness, when one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. Mm. It's not self-love, folks. The key is not self-love, but God's love and self-denial. Jewish rabbis and philosophers back then were teaching the principle, do not do to others as you would not want them to do to you. 
which sounds nice, but the problem is I can obey that by doing nothing. I can literally lay in bed, not even encounter anyone, and fulfill that, avoid people altogether. And that's the world's way of doing things. Well, just stay in your lane, stay in your bubble, don't get involved in other people's lives, don't mess with them, don't get in the way of others. Now, is that love or is that merely sterile absence? Jesus in Luke 6 reversed it. Do to others as you wish that they would do to you. He made this a positive command, an active one. Christian love says, I am going to do something to demonstrate care and concern for the marginalized, the downtrodden, the difficult, the hurt, the hurtful, the unloved, and the unlovable. We let love spring into action. And Christians, sadly, we are more known for what we are against than what we are for. What if instead of just not stealing, we gave generously? What if instead of just not slandering, we encouraged others? What if instead of not killing, we imparted life? What if instead of not harming our neighbors, we helped them? What if instead of just not being reactive, we were proactive? What if we loved people as they were made to be loved? Oh, how irresistible the Christian gospel would be to our world if we truly loved our neighbors more than we love ourselves. Imagine with me, folks, what our world would look like if we showed love toward others with the same tenacity and ferocity that Jesus shows us. Bottom line. So what, here it is. What's the bottom line? Well, Jesus says it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others unconditionally, radically, and demonstrably. In other words, love people like Jesus does.